when I started down this transition journey, it was all about passing. As I think it is for a lot of people, it was kind of, I need to pass. This is not going to work if I don't pass, but whatever, I'll try it. If I don't pass, then I will deal with myself then. Um, what I realized as I entered the journey and was kind of maybe midway through was that passing would present its own authenticity problems. I, I realized that while I had a gender issue, while I had dysphoria, I also had this shame bubble. I had all these things I was hiding and not telling anybody about. And all of a sudden now I'm transitioning, which means I am very vulnerable. I walk into a room, everybody knows what's happening before they even talk to me, which is an incredible opportunity to be very authentic and real with people. And I thought, gosh, if I, if I were to get to the point that I fully passed, then now I'm going to have to invent 32 years of history that didn't exist. And I'm going to have to make up you know, kind of people are going to expect me to have these experiences that I don't have. People are going to expect me to understand all of these, you know, biological experiences that, that females have that I don't have. And I'm just going to be lying from a different side than where I used to lie. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the audio edition of Broadview. I'm Lisa Selen Davis. I'm recording this in my niece's room in a Canadian city alongside the railroad tracks. So if you hear the train, that's what's happening. Speaking of Canadians, my interview today is with a trans woman named Julia Malat. I just started noticing her on Twitter and she was saying some really smart and insightful things differentiating between trans rights and trans ideology, which, as many of you know, is something I think is really important to talk about. And she's been advocating for changes in schools and other institutions, and I really wanted to hear her story and hear what it's like for someone who's transitioned recently but also even more recently transitioned into fighting against the ideology of some of in her own community. So this is my interview with Julia Malat. Julia Malat, welcome to Broadview. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you today. I wonder if we could start with your origin story of sorts, and you can talk about how you came to transition. My origin story. Oh gosh, do you want the do you want the Coles Notes version? Do you want the the book version? How how in depth would you like me to go? Oh, I know that's a big that that could take the whole time. Um, well, do a little skimming. You know, did you? Did you experience something called gender dysphoria? Were you gender non-conforming as a child? Is it something you discovered later? However you want to do okay. it. Okay. Yeah, totally. I would love to. So yeah, I felt this way as a child. Um, I feel like it's so cliche to say that um, because when you're that young, you know, you don't know what you're feeling, but you know that you're unhappy with the way things are. And there was all of these little memories, like one that sticks up for me was kindergarten, um, I would never want to play. I wanted to play house because I didn't like playing with the boy toys. I wanted to play house, but I, I didn't want to play house because I had to be the father or I had to be the son. And those roles just didn't make sense to me. But I also knew that it was wrong for me to want to be the mom or the daughter. So I'd always end up being the dog because, of course, when you're five, dogs don't have gender. So that was a very safe thing to be. Um, 
And that didn't really change throughout my whole childhood. I, I think I saw four counselors before grade six, just to try to figure out, you know, why, why can't Jason find any friends? Why is he unable to, you know, to connect with the boys? And um, this was, this was the nineties. So there really at least wasn't any talk about gender dysphoria in transition, at least in the circles I was in. Um, my mom tells me that even privately, she wasn't told anything about this. Um, and I also was in a very religious household. So many of these counselors were also Christian based. And so even talking about, you know, whether I was gay and stuff, no one, no one was having those conversations. Um, and it was when I was 12 years old that I started to really find the language to describe what I was feeling. And of course there was nothing in the school system at that point, there was nothing in our health system that was talking about it, but there was the internet. And I had this conversation in grade seven with a classmate um, where I remember we were in the playground and I was really starting to, to solidify for myself how I was envious of not being able to be a girl and feeling very restricted. And I remember saying to my friend, like, but we all feel that way, right? It's just the grass is greener on the other side. And I, I think we all just wish we were the other gender. And he kind of looked at me and was like, no, I, I don't think most of us feel that way. And that was when it clicked, like, oh, maybe, maybe I'm feeling something different. So I go on, I go home. I was a huge nerd. I love to just Google things. I spent most of my days on howstuffworks.com and other things to understand how, how the world works. So I, I went and started Googling and sure enough, I started to find blogs about transsexualism, as it was called back then. Um, really no academic resources at that point were online, but and there were lots of journal articles, but I didn't know what those were when I was 12, of course. But I, I found lots of lots of blogs. And when I started reading them, I instantly kind of went, this is me, like everything they're describing in terms of how they feel, just perfectly described kind of what I was feeling in myself. Um, and I didn't, it was both relieving to be like, okay, other people feel this way. At least, at least I kind of have a box to put myself in. And it was also horrifying because this was right around the time that gay marriage was starting to become a conversation in Canada and being very religious. Of course, I was in a church that talked about how bad that was and how evil these people were. And I just remember sitting in church thinking like, they're not even talking about people like me. Like if it's, if it's so bad to be gay, then whatever I am is like, we're not even talking about that. And so I, I took it all and I held a lot of shame and embarrassment. And I didn't tell anybody at this point. But as I said, I was a huge nerd. So I, <laughs> in grade eight, I, I wanted answers. I thought like, I'm going to figure out what this is. Because in my head, I was like, if I'm, if I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, as the classic narrative would go, well, then I should transition. And if not, then I shouldn't transition. And so I, I figured if I just do enough research, I'll find the answer. So I, I grabbed a grade nine and 10 biology textbooks and started to like read biology and before I knew it I was into the journal articles so I was reading like Blanchard and Lawrence and Bailey and a lot of those people as these things were coming out when I was in early high school but I was hiding all this from my parents because I just couldn't imagine facing having to tell them how I felt and I, I never did I, I told them when I was 28 <laughs> that's different ahead a bit but I didn't tell them at all in high school um I remember one day I was looking at cost of transitioning and I think there's some number like twenty thousand dollars or something for bottom surgery and I looked at my bank account that had three hundred dollars in it and thought like I just I can't do this because I'm gonna have to run away from home and all of these things so when I was 14 I decided I'm not going to do anything about this I'm going to ignore it I'm going to be a man and I will make it work and so I kind of buried it all um and got very religious at this point too I started to dive very deeply into my church I met a girl when I was 15 who I ended up marrying uh seven years later um, I did tell her when I was 18 about how I felt, but same thing. I was kind of, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm going to ignore it. And so we 
we were together for 12 years and I was a, I was a pretty horrible husband. Mm. I didn't know I was a horrible husband at that time, but looking back now, I see that I had chosen not to be happy. I had this problem that I knew about. And I said, rather than have any authenticity in my life, I'm going to bury this in shame, which of course leads to a lot of narcissistic behaviors. And that was how I lived my life until my late twenties where everything started to fall apart for me. I'd say I hit like a midlife crisis in my twenties rather than maybe a bit later when it typically is. And it affected my job, it affected my volunteer programs, it affected my marriage, which ultimately kind of fell apart on me and brought me down to a place I did end up in the hospital with a suicide attempt. And that was when I really started to face this stuff. And it kind of brought me to a place where I didn't have a lot to lose. So I finally came back to this and said, maybe I should try a transition because I don't have much more to lose at this point. So that was exactly what I did. And it Everything, everything changed at that point. I dealt with a lot of the emotional problems I wasn't facing. Um, the dysphoria that I had always had went away and it allowed me to build better relationships with my family and kind of everything, everything took off again. So I'm five years into my transition now and that's you know, kind of the long and short of my journey through my transition. Does that make you wish you'd had the option when you were 12 or 14? It's such a complicated question because, yes, you know, I knew how I felt when I was 12 and 14, and I still feel that way. And of course, if I had transitioned, then if that had been a, where the world was at, then it would have been easier. I would have avoided a lot of pain for myself and other people. I probably would pass. There'd, there'd be a lot of benefits to that. And so I am not unilaterally against transition. I think it is, or say like childhood transition, I think that there's a time and a place for it. But I also recognize that it's hard to know. I also know that kids can fall into this place and it may not be the right decision for them. And so looking back, it's easy to say 12-year-old Jason was a good fit. But was it possible to know at the time that 12-year-old Jason was a good fit? That's a hard question to answer. And I, I certainly can't answer it. What benefit do you feel like um, you've incurred from, from being Jason for a while and now being Julia? I would say for me, there is a deep, a deep appreciation. Um, my, my partner comes from a background where they had very little money growing up. She was used to utilizing the food bank and using other social supports to get by. And I, I had a pretty typical middle-class lifestyle. And I've seen the difference with us in terms of how she knows how to appreciate money and security in a way that I don't. I take it for granted, but she really values that. And so much more thankful for the little things and even though she's now had money for a number of years she still retains that and for me i would say that the, the same thing kind of applies with gender and gender expression and all these elements of i don't take it for granted even now i don't take for granted what i can do how i can express myself because i spent a long time not being able to do that and i i'm thankful and appreciative that that i've had that experience because i think it gives me context that most people won't have. And you mentioned, you know, one of the benefits, if you'd been able to, if you'd been able to transition early before puberty and during puberty, is that you would have passed. And I find this, you know, as someone who has studied gender nonconformity, and, and if I'm an advocate in any way, I mean, mostly I'm a journalist, but I do feel like I openly advocate for understanding and tolerating gender nonconformity. So I feel like sometimes 
the emphasis on passing is about gender conformity, you know, and <laughs> what if we just made room for you as you are right now? There's, you know? there's so much there. There's so much there. I, when I started down this transition journey, it was all about passing. As I think it is for a lot of people, it was kind of, I need to pass. This is not going to work if I don't pass, but whatever, I'll try. And if I don't pass, then I will deal with myself then. Um, what I realized as I entered the journey and was kind of maybe midway through was that passing would present its own authenticity problems. I, I realized that while I had a gender issue, while I had dysphoria, I also had this shame bubble. I had all these things I was hiding and not telling anybody about. And all of a sudden now I'm transitioning, which means I am very vulnerable. I walk into a room, everybody knows what's happening before they even talk to me, which is an incredible opportunity to be very authentic and real with people. And I thought, gosh, if I, if I were to get to the point that I fully pass, then now I'm going to have to invent 32 years of history that didn't exist. And I'm going to have to make up, you know, kind of mm -hmm. people are going to expect me to have these experiences that I don't have. People are going to expect me to understand all of these, you know, biological experiences that, that females have that I don't have. And I'm just going to be lying from a different side than where I used to lie. And so that, that was a perspective that kind of helped me realize that maybe there is a benefit to the authenticity that I get by not fully passing. Um, now, as far as you also mentioned something there about the nonconformity of it, and I guess that depends on how you conceive of this, of this gender space. I, I struggle with the concept of infinite genders and a lot of these, the, the ideology that is very popular these days. Um, it, it's, if it works for some people, that's their business. It's not, I'm not here to tell people what's right or wrong, but I didn't medically and surgically transition for diversity's sake. I did it because I really felt that being a man didn't work. And so I am absolutely trying to align with, you know, with women and with female, like biological females, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that is the case for a lot of people. And certainly the original cohort was, I mean, that was part of passing, right? Is And also to blend in, I heard that from a lot of older trans people as, you know, you, you transition and then you're, and then you go out into society. Nobody identified as trans, right? They, the idea was you take this step and then, and then you have your new life. And, and maybe that had some limitations also, <clears throat> but this, what's happening now, which is, right, who did I just hear talking about this? Somebody was just saying the idea of trans visibility is kind of anathema to what the project has been historically, because the point was to be invisible. I have no idea where I heard that, but it was very, very recently. Um, well, exactly. And that's where I'd say I'm okay being visible now, because I understand the importance of people like me being visible in order to help to raise acceptance but it's not because i'm proud to be trans it's because right. i think it's important for me to be out and be visible it would also be very nice to be able to just blend in <laughs> to be quite yeah. honest yeah yeah i keep thinking about um there's a song by this by this uh, playwright and songwriter we love named uh i don't know why i said we but my husband and i love named ethan lipton and he has this song um that goes old fellas grow boobies old chicks grow beards we just look more like each other year after year <laughs> and i do think that there is now that i'm older you know i just see like there are a lot of 
older women who I think, oh, is that an, is that an older woman or a trans man? You know, like but we, you do start as your hormone levels shift in, in older age. You no, know, there, there is more, <laughs> there is more crossover and it's both easier and harder to blend in. But how yeah. are you, how are you identifying before you transitioned five years ago? How were you walking around in the world? What do you mean by that? I don't know. It's like a straight man or a, a just a man. I don't know. What was your... I guess, okay. I, I mean, I guess that's an interesting question because I have identified as trans in the sense of feeling this way since, as I, I said, I was 12 when I kind of right. found this, but I wasn't telling anybody that. So nobody would know, but I felt that way. And I felt like, oh, nobody knows my struggle. Nobody knows how a hard time I have. And I, I tell myself all of these things, which was not healthy and did not help any of my relationships. Um, I presented as, yeah, straight white man. You know, I had a had a nice nice beard going on here at that point. Did you were you feminine in your mannerisms, quote unquote feminine, typically feminine? Yeah, everybody everybody thought I was everybody thought I was gay. Um, <laughs> it was it was almost a joke, right? Because I, I I talked the same way I talk now. I know I have very much an expressive feminine way of speaking, um, and it was the same back then. Um, which was fine. I didn't have a problem with that, but that was an assumption that certainly came up frequently. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you transitioned five years ago. It, it worked for you. Things are going better. And then you've joined this, you become part of this community. Um, when did you start to have a kind of awakening about the the difference between your experience and the general rhetoric, the paradigm, yeah. the, the ideology. Yeah. Well, the community is so interesting because you, you decide you're going to transition. And of course I had this immense shame that was keeping me private and hidden, but then I found individuals who are quite a bit younger than me who were in a space where this was much more normal. And so they kind of helped me deal with my own shame. And then I zeroed into those relationships where I felt safe. And when I did start transitioning, my family was not accepting my, my like parents and siblings and that the extended family, because as I said, a lot of religious roots there. And so they struggled with that, which pushes you even more into finding that affirmation within, within a group who's going to call you she, her and Julia, even when you literally still have a beard and all of these things going on. And so I, I think that was important. Like, I think I needed that at that point in order to work through what I was working through, but as I progressed through the years, I started to realize some of the problems with those ways of thinking. And I think where it probably first became evident for me was when it came to pronouns and people, you know, misgendering, as we would say, where I didn't have problems with people doing that maliciously. You know, I, I, I'm surrounded by people who love me and who care for me, but it would happen a lot because my voice was lower because I was mid-transition or because someone just knew me before and they perceived me as male. And so someone who cares for me might come out and accidentally say he when talking about me with a group of people. And I realized how much those moments would stick. They would stick for days or weeks. Like I could tell you like, yeah, that time, that time when I was hanging out with Natasha and she called me he. And I know that it was completely accidental, but as I thought about this more, I realized it stung because I was living a lie. It stung because I wanted to be seen as biologically female and I was pretending I was biologically female and I was going through the world saying you know Lisa sees me as biologically female just like her and the moment that you come out with he I'm like oh gosh you just popped my bubble you don't see me that way you might love me you might care for me but 
you, you recognize that I'm biologically male and then I would lose my confidence. And then I'd feel uncomfortable with you and think like, I don't want to really hang out with Lisa anymore because now I feel uncomfortable. And after reflecting on this, I realized I was doing all of that to myself because I am biologically male. And if I accept that, then there's no problem. If I accept that I'm biologically male, then someone coming out and saying he by accident is just them recognizing that, right? But but the ideology helps you to create this structure for yourself that's not real. And so that was probably my first wake-up call to that. Um, do you want to comment on that or do you want me to keep going? No, I want you to keep going. It's keep going. interesting, okay. yeah. Yeah, and so then uh, my workplace hooked me up with a fantastic life coach. Um, I was moving up into leadership, and so I had this career-slash-life coach, which was the best experience I've had in my life. Um, I had access to him pretty much as much as I needed. We met at least once a week, but sometimes more. I read piles of books that year because he had all these amazing resources, and they were sometimes they were work-based resources. Other times they were Alan Watts or Werner Erhard or all kinds of philosophical books. I read Alfred Krzyzewski at one point and looked at, you know, the general semantics and all kinds of things. And we talked a lot about authenticity. We talked a lot about integrity. And as I, as I really explored that stuff more deeply, it, it led to some of the things I mentioned earlier about like, if I really want to be authentic with people, then I need to recognize that I'm biologically male and I might present as a woman. And there's a reason I do that, but, but there's also to be authentic. I need to say, I, that I am what I am. And around the same time, I, um, I adopted my daughter. So my daughter is my partner, one of my partner's younger siblings. And she came to live with me near the beginning of COVID. And I'm her primary caregiver because my daughter has some health issues. Um, and so not my daughter, my, um, my partner has some health issues. And so when she came to stay with me, it was during COVID and she was doing online school. But in her grade 10 year, she was going to be starting doing school in person in our school board here in Waterloo region. And she was very excited about this because she had been in very small schools before because she had lived in a smaller community a number of hours away. And now she was going to go to a big city high school. And I was really scared for myself because I knew, remembered what school was like when I was there in the early 2000s and how if I had had a friend who had a transgender parent, we would have all made fun of them and you know, been awkward around them. And I thought, is this going to happen to my daughter? And is that going to cause her to be uncomfortable with me? Is that going to cause a relational strain if, you know, her friends don't like her because of me and all of this? Because I had no idea where schools were at these days. So she goes to school and I, I really quickly realized that it's a very different place than it was 20 years ago, which is in, in many ways a good thing. The acceptance is there, which is wonderful. And the education is there. So people know what this stuff is, which I also think is a good thing. So at first I was, oh, wow, this is amazing that this is talked about. And then I quickly started to realize that there's a dark side to it as well because it's also become very cool. I was cool that I'm trans because diversity is cool and diversity is hip these days. And that was my exposure all of a sudden having a daughter in high school to what's going on now and how many identities there are and how different it is than when I was there, how you can have these identities devoid of dysphoria at all. And that's, that's encouraged almost because the more you explore, the more you find a way to label yourself, the, the, the better it seems seems to be that attitude so that that concerned me um, i was still kind of shocked and trying to figure out what was going on and then in early 2022 um a teacher named carolyn Berjowski, she did a presentation at our school board because i'm from the, the same border she is so she um she presented about um books that she felt were inappropriate for certain age groups and they were 
some of them were LGBT books, some were not, but it was all to do with sexualization, talking about things like transition and somewhat glamorous terms that maybe might be deceptive for children. And she was shut down about four minutes into the presentation because the, the board said that they thought that this was hate speech. And I, of course, wasn't watching that live because who watches school board meetings live? <laughs> at least at that point, I didn't. Um, but then I, I found the video on Twitter a few days later once the board sent out an apology email for the transphobia that occurred in their meeting. And when, the minute I got that email, I thought, I've got to see this, see what happened. So I remember watching her video and getting to the end with it where it cut off and I thought, but where's the bad part? Like, I thought maybe there was more that it, she said something really horrible that they cut out. And then I realized, no, she didn't say anything else. It was just what was there. And I, I come from the public sector space. I, I used to work in the municipal space. And so I knew that 2022 was an election year for us on the municipal and school board level. So the minute I saw that, I thought this is going to be the 2022 issue in our local school board. And we're going to get people on the extremes on both sides who are going to come out and make this a political issue. And I thought, maybe I should be running for this because I am trans. So I certainly understand that side of it. But I also think that what she's saying is okay and that the speech is important that we need to be able to talk about these things and of course i didn't know carolyn at that point um maybe she really was a horrible person who hated trans people i i, I didn't know but I, I did know that what she presented seems to be on its on its surface very reasonable so i ended up running in the election um through that i met carolyn she's actually a very close friend of mine now and we we connect frequently but it was a it was a good experience to to put myself out there i wasn't comfortable yet I ran a very quiet campaign because that was my first time actually being open and public on these issues. And I was worried for myself and I was worried for my daughter of what would happen. Um, but following the campaign, um, I have become much more vocal since as I've made connections, as I've read many more books to understand what's going on more. And as I've become more connected to the community in Ontario and abroad who is concerned about these issues, I've, I've realized that I have a powerful place to speak out from because there's a lot of assumptions that to say anything negative about gender ideology or queer theory is to be transphobic towards trans people. And you, you certainly can be both at the same time, but I don't believe that it is transphobic to raise concerns. And I know that when I deliver that message, it's very powerful because I am trans. So I speak from a place of understanding and knowledge and experience, which can be quite powerful to help people understand that it's okay to have concerns about policy and you can do so while still loving and caring for trans people. What are the... What are the concerns you have about policy or about tenets of the the ideology about, you know, infinite genders and um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that biological sex may not be real, et cetera? Like what what when you said your daughter. She gained some social capital from having a trans parent, but she was also exposed to some ideas that alarmed you so can you talk a little bit about which ideas raised your hackles yeah there are there are a lot of them i would say that the one that i think stuck out to me first was that we seem to be at a place right now where we celebrate transition for the sake of diversity i'm not entirely convinced that that is a good thing I look at someone like myself and I absolutely believe the transition was the right path. I think I needed that. I don't think I'd be alive today if I didn't have that. So I am not in any way anti-transition, but I do think that it comes along with medical risks. I do think that it comes along with lots of 
consequences. And so I don't think that it is a path for the lighthearted, if that makes sense. It's not, it shouldn't be our default path. It should be, this person's really suffering and we can, we can reduce suffering by, by transitioning. So we should transition. And what I have seen in modern, the modern ideological approaches is more of a, as someone described it to me, gender euphoria rather than gender dysphoria. You don't have to be dysphoric, but you just feel even better. It's more, I like this feeling. This is interesting. This is fun. This gives me a way to be unique and special. And I think that we all, we all need that in life. And we have always found ways to identify like that, but I'm not convinced that something that might lead to hormonal and surgical transition is a good place to play with that, especially when it comes to younger children. I, like I said earlier, I'm not saying that I don't, there are times and places where transitioning a young child is, isn't, I, I think there are places where that is appropriate, but it should be well vetted. It should be occasional. It should be, there really is an extenuating circumstance here. You know, there's this deep dysphoria we're trying to deal with, not just exploration for exploration's sake. And as I've been working very deeply in the school system across many boards here in Ontario, I've come to see that, that that really is the mindset right now that, that underlies the theory is that exploration for the sake of exploration is a good thing to do. And you don't have to be dysphoric. Maybe you should just try being a girl or a boy anyways to see if maybe you like that better, to see if something in between works better for you. And when it comes to expression, absolutely, that's fine. When it comes to breaking down masculine and feminine stereotypes of who can do what, that's great. We, we should break those stereotypes down. But when it comes to leading you down a path that might lead to transition, that, that's a whole other ballgame. So some of the issues I've been working on have been related to things like parental notification here in Ontario. All school boards but one will prevent your parents from even knowing about a transition at school. If the kid says, I don't want my parent to know, they won't tell them. And to me, that, that's very concerning because this is not a neutral act if you're doing a social transition. And we should have counselors and we should have psychiatrists involved in that process. But the connection between the medical community and the school is the parent. And if parents are not notified, that, that can't happen. And it's, as, I've, uh, as I've dived in pretty deeply with some school boards here, it's this is the only domain where that happens. Like I get a call if my daughter skips the class. I have to sign a form to say my daughter can have her photo taken, but yet they can change her name and change her pronouns and know that she is looking to go down a future transition, like surgical and medical transition and not tell me about that. And, and of course the argument on the other side is, well, the household might not be safe and that, that, is, that is a risk, but we have mechanisms to deal with that. There's lots of unsafe households and this is why we have children's aid services and we have, when, when there's a bonafide concern, we have a process for that, but, but we're treating this differently because of where the ideology has led us. So, so that's been probably my one concern. But then the other thing that I've also come to discover as I've been working through this has been the fact that we just can't talk about it at all. There was a parent up in Ottawa. So this is another, another board in Ontario, but he wanted to talk about the usage of Washington school. He had concerns about transgender girls using the, the women's washroom with other other students. And so he went to his board, he did a presentation. Um, I didn't know him at the time, although I have met him since. And within 45 seconds, he was cut off and told that what he was saying was unsafe for transgender individuals, so he couldn't speak. And when I, they, they of course didn't post the video, but I, I'm, I'm connected to some groups that provided me with a copy of what happened. And as I heard the video, he was extremely polite. He wasn't mentioning any particular individuals. He used all of the quote unquote, right language, according to how you're supposed to describe this stuff. It wasn't that he crossed those lines. It was that we can't talk about this. You're not allowed to even question this. And, and that concerned me because I thought it's not about what the board decides. 
if we're at a point that we can't even talk about things like this, then then now we have compelled speech to the extreme. Now we're at this place that we can't even explore these issues. And so I ended up posting a video in defense of him, not even in defense of his position, just in defense of we need to let people speak. We need to be able to have these conversations. And it it went viral and kind of took off, which was which was an experience. But I, I, I think that's that's the point, right? Is that we need to be able to have these conversations and we're just not able to. So that's certainly another trend that I've noticed and what I'm doing is that I have concerns with the narrative that we have right now in the schools and in our government, but I also have concerns that you're not even allowed to question it. Yeah, it's it's really unpleasant to live in a society where you are not allowed to to say, I mean, sometimes just facts, sometimes just facts that we all know to be true um, because they're heretical and there'll be a pile on and everyone is terrified and um and you know that use of the word unsafe which is come to me come to mean um emotional discomfort right someone someone may be mm -hmm. really uncomfortable and feel bad and feel shame feel a lot of the things that you felt as a child and by the way i didn't have gender dysphoria but i had very very intense bodily shame very intense which i think i still I still grapple with that. So, you know, in an attempt to make these these once unspeakable things um, discussable to do with transition, now we've made all of these other things unspeakable. And, um, and that is, I get it. I get the overcorrection, but it, I just think it's going to backfire horribly. And, and I think it is backfiring in terms of backlash and lack of understanding and and that the reason i keep talking to to people like you who are happily transitioned but i mean not all of them are super happy but you know transitioned permanently um mostly happy and objecting to some of these tenets of these ideologies is that i think that's the only way to maintain the gains in understanding of gender diversity and gender nonconformity um, without having ha all of this stripped back by people who have a really, really narrow range of normal. I, I, think you're, I think you're spot on there. And that's something I identified in that first video that I posted in support of the Ottawa parent was that my concern is the backlash comes against people like me. Because when people see people like Nick cut off, they blame me. They blame the transgender people for the fact that they're causing a situation where they can't speech, speak. And I'm saying, but but that's not the case. The the activists are causing that. The ideology is causing that. And there are certainly trans people included in that. But there's also a lot of other people included in it. And there's lots of other people who are trans who are, who are not the problem. They're, I don't want to say victims, but they're at least peripheral to what's going on. They're just trying to live their lives and have no concern with a parent politely expressing a concern like what, what Nick tried to do. You also mentioned something else there that I would love to zero in on, which is the way that the language is changing. Words like safe, words like violence, words like harm, words like hate. As I have do dove into this, because I now spend like, I don't know, 30 hours a week talking to people on both sides of this. So I have all these conversations and it's a different set of language because hate on the on the anti-woke side, I'll say or on the more, the more right side of things has the more classical meaning of coming from a place of contempt 
versus on the left, hate now just means anything that might perpetuate a systematic oppression. And I'm like, well, that that is a very different concept of hate. And when you use the word hate, it brings up those feelings of I don't want to be hateful because that's contempt. That's all of this stuff here. But but it's causing people to get very confused and it's certainly causing our discourse not to work. Well, I also think I, that's such an interesting definition of anything that perpetuates system systematic oppression. But I, I also think it means anyone who disagrees with me, anyone, <clears throat> who, dis, anyone who disrupts my worldview. I mean, it's very convenient to say that's hateful because then you can't then you can't talk about it then the end and when when we label something transphobic that's the end that's the end of the conversation and what you're saying is no we ha we actually have to be able to have a conversation about it and people won't cease to exist they won't die if we have a debate over what we should teach what words should mean how to accommodate different belief systems um and the research and ethics around um, socially and medically transitioning children and adolescents. And absolutely. Well, you mentioned transphobia there and there's a, I think there's a huge cost to the way people are using that word too. I've had a few conversations with individuals who don't believe that transphobia exists. And when I first heard that I was shocked, but as I explored it with them, it's because these are individuals who have had concerns about gender ideology and they have been called transphobic many times. And they know they're not. They love me. They care about me. They know that they hold no contempt. However, since they've been labeled transphobic for the last few years, they've just come to think that's the word that gets thrown at me by the progressive left since they don't like what I have to say. And they've kind of come to believe that that's just all that it means. That's what gets, that's how that word gets used. And I'm like, no, there absolutely is transgender hate out there. You're not, you're not hateful, but other people are. But when we use words like that, so, you know, so provocatively, it ends up putting us in a place where it just loses its meaning. And I think we should save words like transphobia and hate speech for when real transphobia and real hate speech actually exists, because those those things do happen as well. But they're certainly not everyday encounters. Yeah, I think that's really important. It's almost the little boy who cried wolf, you know, that that same thing of you're you're slapping this label on so many different things and then they're. Mm -hmm. And, and at the same time, this also brings up, you know, back to the word unsafe, that surely there are people who are really emotionally and physically abused, and they are actually unsafe in their homes. And I, and I have talked to many older gay and lesbian people who really were treated horribly and or kicked out you know their parents did not understand they didn't accept but a, a lot of what you're seeing in your daughter's school of these of um this explosion of trans identity is happening in liberal circles where the people are predisposed to be accepting uh, of this kind of diversity but they might object to they might object to a social transition because they know it's a psychological intervention or they might want to talk about it or they might want to explore what else is going on. And they might object to physical transition, medical transition for a whole lot of reasons. And um, that's interpreted as unsafe. 
And one of the <laughs> things that's one of the, I think the biggest misconceptions that, that schools and the, and the medical profession are promoting is that kids are in danger if their parents are not af affirming. And there is research about family support and family acceptance. There, there's a group called the Family Acceptance Project that's housed at, at uh, UCSF. And they've done this research about, you know, family rejection and increase in depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts. But nowhere, nowhere in that research does it say you have to affirm and go along with everything. It's really more about how do you stay connected? How do you support even when you disagree? Nothing says affirm your child and do everything they say. And nowhere does it say schools keep keep secrets from parents. And, and nowhere does it say a child is better off without their family if their family doesn't affirm. So it's just this, we've just run wild with this idea that you're in danger if if your parents don't affirm. That that isn't what the research says. And that and support is not the same thing as I accept everything you say at face value with no challenge. I think I think challenge is part of support. But when we are interpreting questioning as hate, you can't challenge, you can't talk. I, I love everything that you you said there. I with the work that I'm doing now, I am surrounding myself with many people who do not affirm my identity. They might not affirm parts of it. They might not really support the idea of transitioning, but are empathetic with how I feel up to the point that they refuse to call me she, her, they refuse to call me a woman. And I think that it's so valuable for me to have those connections because for me, all I need is someone who loves me. They don't have to agree with me, but they have to love me. And that's good enough. And it allows me to have interesting conversations and it allows me to be stronger and more resilient in terms of having that experience. And the pushback that I get on that is quite shocking. The number of people who would tell me, you shouldn't, you shouldn't hang out with people. You shouldn't associate with people who will not affirm you as a woman, Julia. And I'm just th thinking, but, but why, why not? Because quite honestly, if I can go and have a conversation with someone who's willing to trust me enough to be authentic and say, I don't affirm your I, I don't agree with you that you're a woman but I do love you and I want to invite you into my house to have dinner like that's a level of authenticity that I rarely get because there's a lot of people out there who are going to say the right thing they're going to use the right pronouns and they're going to say the right thing that they know they're supposed to but but they don't buy it they're just lying to me they're, they're saying the right answer and that is worse for me because yes it might be what I want to hear but now you've they've created a barrier because they're not being honest with me which means we can only get so close and then there's these other people who are willing to go out and on a limb and actually tell me how they really feel. And now I can have a deep, authentic conversation with them. And in the end, that's what really matters. It, it doesn't matter whether they think I'm a woman or not. It matters whether or not they like me and whether they love me, whether they want to be in community with me. And I think a lot of people are missing out on that by being so dug into this. If people don't affirm you, then cancel them, then cut them out and don't associate with them. Julia, you sound so grounded and you i want to be like that myself i'm not i'm not there yet even though i'm <laughs> much older than you but i i'm not good at having conversations with people who disagree with me it's easier it's easier for people who are further right than me which is most 
people or in the olden <laughs> days with most people. It, it's harder with people, I think, who, who are really, really dug in. And maybe that's because I don't, there are only a couple of things that I feel really sure about. Like, I feel sure that the media has done a bad job covering this issue. And I feel sure that we need to be able to talk about it. But after that, it's always a little blurry to me because mm. I guess having spent several years now studying the exceptions to the rules about sex and gender, I, I, and being raised hardcore feminist, I suppose it just, sometimes I can't, I can't get on board with there's just one way to see it. And I don't want to anyway, but um, <laughs> you know, that's not interesting to me, but I am, um, I get upset easily and I'm listening to you and thinking, how can we train young people to have the mindset that you have, which is, you know who you are. So if somebody calls you the wrong thing. You're not going to melt into a puddle. You're, you can be curious and you have enough confidence and strength and yet vulnerability, openness, curiosity. I don't feel like we're training any kids to be like this in school. What, what should we do? How you, you had to, we can't get them all, um, though I'm desperate to meet whoever your coach is, but we can't get them all this training in full. It would be great if they were all studying philosophy and linguistics and semantics and, and then coming to this place that you came to, but they're not, they're being, they're in school being taught that everything uh, is hate that except for this tiny little sliver and um and that if they're gender diverse in any way they're incredibly fragile and the entire world has to accommodate them or they they can't thrive and this is the opposite of what i want for my own child um who is you know a, a typically masculine female and um and it, and for myself who is some uh -huh whatever the heck I am at this age. Well, I, I think you really zeroed in on it when you talked about the unsafe, the way we're using that word previously. And we shut down things that we don't, that don't make us feel good by saying it's unsafe. And when I started down this journey, I've been on for the past probably nine months now, I started to have some really early conversations that were recorded. The, the conversations that I have or will be putting out on my podcast. But um, the very first time that I asked somebody, you know, do you see me as a woman? And this is someone who is quite gender critical, but who loves me, who loves me deeply. And I have this great friendship with, and she tells me, you know, no, I, I don't. I see you as a trans woman and I love you as Julia, but I don't see you as a woman. And like that whole night, I just couldn't, the whole weekend, even after we recorded, I couldn't stop thinking about it because it did get to me. And it was, and I had to work through that, but, but experiencing that and going through that made me resilient made me realize like oh what do I have packed up in this world why does it matter because I know that this person loves me why am I so concerned if they do or they don't and instead what we said is we, we have to stop those conversations you know we're in a place now where if that individual had said that to me at work she could be fired for it <laughs> and that doesn't make me stronger as a trans person that just you know puts me in a fragile bubble where we have to make sure it doesn't pop because it's going to hurt Julia's feelings and that doesn't that doesn't help me. That doesn't make me better. And I, I think I'm really sad that that's what we seem to be doing with a lot of, not just trans people, we're doing it with young people in general. I, I think back to books like 
like iGen or anti-fragility or coddling of the American mind. And you know, all of those authors are really touching on the same concept of how we're protecting people from things that might not feel good. And that's where life happens is at the intersection of discomfort. Yeah, that's why they tell you to get out of your comfort zone. That's where you grow. Mm -hmm. That is exactly where you grow. Do you think that if you'd grown up in a time or in a family where there had been room for you as you as you were as a child that I mean I know it's it's the same as the first question <laughs> early question I asked you but I mean maybe the question should be how do you think people should have responded to you and and when there's a, a child like you today who we 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 can't know the outcome. We can't know for sure what the best path for that child is, but how should we treat or address that child's situation? See that, I don't think I'm comfortable answering that question because okay. you know, I'm humbled by the fact that I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know the answer, even in my own life. I know what I would have liked at the same time. Look at, look at the growth that I've been able to have by going through the journey that I've been through. And so I don't, I don't know what's best for kids. Um, I think back to like Norman Spack and some of the advice that he's given before. And I think that there's, it makes a lot of sense to me, but I also hear the whole, you start to put someone in a social transition place and they're more likely to persist just because they've gone down that path a bit. And now they have established a, a public identity. So I, I don't know. And I'm okay being in that place of not knowing because I think a lot of people have decided they know answers in this space when it maybe is unknown. Well, I think that's one of the things that's so hard. And I, and I have said before, when you're around people who are saying there's a very, very clear answer and this is exactly what should happen, be wary of those people. We don't have good research. We have to... It's all very murky. No, it's hard to know what to do. There are other cultures where they have room for gender diversity, you know, like the Fafafina of Samoa, et cetera. But they're wildly homophobic cultures also with very narrow definitions of what, you know, what it means to be a man or a woman. There are so many different ways of looking at it that I think... I think the not knowing and this, in fact, I think the only way to get anywhere to get more information is to start with, we don't know. And I'm concerned okay. about clinicians who don't start there. And I'm, I'm concerned that that's not the first thing that we tell the kids and the parents of the kids. We don't know. Yeah. And there's no way to know. And now we can talk. Are you, can you handle that? We can, we can move on from there, but it's the, the certainty. Anyone who is that certain hasn't been paying attention. And I talk to a lot of parents and, and kids who most of the parents though, who are in really tight spots in that situation where they, they have a child who has ended up down this path and they're realizing that they're in a medical or school community now that isn't going to give them the information, isn't going to look at this complexly, is going to say, this is the answer. And these conversations break my heart because these parents get on the phone with me and they're usually in tears 
And they, they first have to go on for two or three minutes clarifying to me they're not transphobic. They do love their kid. They really do. They'll accept their kid no matter what. It's not that they won't let them transition. But, and then they explain, you know, the context of their kid and what they've seen and why they're, they're concerned though. And they're not saying their kid shouldn't transition. They're saying, but I'm being told that they have to transition. I'm being told there's no, there is no other answer here. And, but, but here's my kid's unique situation. Here's what I know about my kid from when they were five and when they were seven. And here's my kid's, you know, comorbidities and other things that align here and all of these all of these factors that add to the complexity. And, and, and in some of those cases, maybe those kids should transition, but we've, we've now ended up in a place where we said it's transphobic to even question whether or not a, a given kid should transition. And that's heartbreaking in general, but it's especially heartbreaking when you're talking to those parents and that they feel the need to qualify themselves as non-transphobic because they're so used to just being told you, you must be a bad hateful parent. If you won't instantly tell your child that this is wonderful and they should, and they should do this. And, and having a kid now, I can relate to that. You know, I have a daughter who I'm very fortunate. And she's very open with me. Um, she tells me everything far more than I want to know Ooh. sometimes. And she's she's so very lucky. feminine. She's very into boys. So it's, it's very stereotypical in that sense. But if all of a sudden, because of everything I've seen, she came suddenly and said, actually, I'm a boy. I mean, I would, it would surprise me. And I, I wouldn't tell her she's wrong. But I also wouldn't instantly say, okay, that makes sense to me. I go, something has happened here. We should We should be sure before we make any big steps here. And I just, I, I understand how heartbreaking it is to have people tell you, you're a bad parent, then. you're a bad parent because you don't mm. instantly affirm. We got to wrap up soon, but I want to ask about the cost for you of speaking up and, and <laughs> how other trans people have reacted to you. The cost for speaking up. Okay, so... I, I'm, I'm a centrist. I'm a classical liberal. I'm politically homeless, like many of us are who are kind of in that space. Um, and so I'm lucky enough to get the attacks and the vitriol from both sides. I get the far left attacks and the far right attacks. So that's, that's been interesting. I've done some talks with people just talking about the difference and how the difference in hate across our political spectrum. Um, but no, it has been, it has been discouraging for sure. Um, I realized that people don't necessarily care what your message is. If you're not with them, you're against them is how many people see it. And so there is the trans narrative that you're supposed to carry. And if you go outside of that, you get, you get canceled. So I had an experience earlier or last month when I, I was defending that, that Ottawa parent, as I mentioned, and then I was going up to Ottawa a week later, because I was going to do some podcast recording with um, some individuals up there who are some well-known names in the space who have expressed, you know, some questioning views, not questionable views, but they expressed some views that are questionable about some trans ideology. And so this was posted on Twitter and some individuals didn't like that I was talking to these individuals. And so they started to post things about me, about how I'm advocating hate and some pretty nasty stuff. Um, and then locally, they tried to get me kicked off of the boards that I serve on. Um, I'm, I'm on the board of our local food bank. It's a wonderful organization. And people started posting to withhold food donations from the food bank until I was kicked off the board, which looks really horrible because saying that we should, you know, jeopardize food security for our most vulnerable citizens in order to get back at a director because they advocate for free speech is, is never a good look. But even the fact that someone would try to do that is it's concerning. Um, and for a while, that really, it confused me because I, I couldn't, figure out why would people not want me to go and talk 
to Chanel and Shannon in Ottawa. Like if you're very, they, they're convinced these people are transphobic. I don't find them to be transphobic at all. They, they love me. But even if they were, wouldn't that be a good thing that they could talk to me? Maybe they'll meet a trans person. Maybe I could, maybe I could fix them if that was the case. And what I quickly realized is that no, it's not, they weren't afraid for me and my safety and they, they weren't afraid of anything that other than that I might uncancel them. But a lot of effort has been spent canceling these two. One of them is a teacher who has lost her job and she's been investigated mm -hmm. twice by the Ontario College of Teachers just for comments that she's made questioning some of the ideology and me speaking to them and me exposing the fact that they're human, <laughs> that they can love, that they, you know, that they have good things to say might risk uncanceling them and giving them credibility. And that's very threatening to people who have a very, very entrenched way of looking at these matters. And so the only answer is I must be canceled as well. Um, so that was, that was concerning. Um, I think what was even more concerning, though, was to see how how deep this runs. Uh, our local newspaper that's owned by Rogers Media, one of the media giants in Ontario, they, um, they caught a hold of the story and I, I spoke with them. And then they put out an article that was as clear cut defamation as I have seen in my life. They, they didn't say somebody said that I advocate hate speech, which would be untrue. They said I advocated hate speech as though it was a journalistic fact. And I saw yeah. this and I just, I just, my jaw dropped. So I didn't even have to rely on my lawyer. I just went to them directly and <laughs> like, this must change. And they did four revisions to that article in two days. The article is mostly being gutted at this point. And there's an apology at the top to me and my family for what they wrote. But it's the fact that we even end up there at all. The fact that we're at a point that a major media company would publish an article that says someone's advocating hate speech with nothing to back it up just... I think it's very telling to, to where we stand on these on these issues right now. So, so yeah, there's absolutely a huge cost to me. Um, I think that's emblematic of how important the conversations are, though. I think when, when there's this much pushback on something, that just speaks to why it has to be why it has to be said. What would you like to see happen going forward? My my real hope for the short term is that we can have more conversations happen. Um, I don't think I have the answers. I, I don't know what we should do with many of our policy decisions. These are complex. We need people who are, are credentialed in you know, psychiatry and medicine, which I'm certainly not. Um, so I don't have a list of what we should do. But what I know we need to do first is listen to each other and have these conversations. And, and I've seen successes in that. I mentioned Ottawa and how that parent was shut down. Well, last week, he got to speak again. And this time he got to finish. And other people spoke in support of him and other people spoke against him. And that's wonderful. We had all these voices together and I, I don't want to make it sound too, uh, too, too happy and idyllic because outside people were assaulted in the parking lot and all kinds oh. of things did happen because 300 people showed up on both sides. And it was a, so, so there was certainly downsides, but in the room, in the board meeting, it was respectful, it was clean, and we had the dialogue that we need to have. And last night they had another meeting and again, people came from both sides and they had that dialogue. And I think that that's a small step forward, but it's such an important one that we can at least talk about it. And we need to break down that idea that ideas are harmful. And that's, that's what I'm working on right now. And that's what a lot of my videos and my efforts are focused on is just saying it's okay to have the conversations because um, that makes space for um, the, the medical and scientific community to come in and to help us to say, this is what the research shows we should or shouldn't do. This is what will help support kids. This is what will help support adults. And this is how we build a community where we really do reduce hate because 
transgender hate does still exist. It, it is a thing. And I don't talk about it a lot because that word gets so overused, but it, it does exist. And I, being an active voice on Twitter, I, I, I get to see the worst of it. So it would be lovely to see us work on that. But we've got to be strategic and thoughtful about how we move forward and not just yelling at everybody from a street corner. <laughs> I think that's a great vision and a great goal. And, um, and I think you're doing fantastic work. Uh, and I think Canada, Canada needs you from what I hear. <laughs> yes, there's, there's so many wonderful people up here who are working on this. I've made so many amazing connections with the, with the work that I'm doing and the people I'm talking with. Um, and I'm so thankful that I have that support. Um, I'm also thankful for the silent support that I have, the number of people who cannot come out because of their positions, because of what they do, but they come out privately. And they often have anonymous accounts on Twitter. They'll start with a private message. And before I know it, unprovoked, they're sending me pictures of their family and their kids and mm. telling me about themselves because they want to be connected, but but they can't because we've created a place when people can't speak. Yeah. And I'm saddened we need to open up so they can talk, but it's been so nice to even have them there to rally behind me. You know, people are coming and saying, how can I financially donate to your cause? And I'm like, I, I don't need money. Like, <laughs> that's not my <laughs> problem at this point. Thank you. But But really, we just need to... We need to advocate for liberal principles so that we can get past this place we are, which will be ultimately better for everybody, transgender and non-transgender alike. Well, that's a great note to end on. And Julia Malat, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great conversation. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. This has been a, a lovely way to spend my afternoon. Yeah, okay, thank you.